Duncan read for us from a very familiar passage, right? Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. We're, we're very familiar with this. In fact, even the world is familiar with this passage. If, you, if you've ever seen Charlie Brown's Christmas, Linus stands up and says, I'll tell you the reason for Christmas, Charlie Brown. And then he, he basically quotes this passage. This is a very well-known passage. It, it goes beyond the church, it goes into the world, and even unbelieving people at Christmas time, they hear songs and music about it, and they know this story. We're familiar with it. We know that the angels came out of heaven and proclaimed to shepherds who were watching their flocks at night that in Bethlehem, in a stable, was born to them a Savior, Christ, the Messiah, their Lord. This will be a sign for you. You should go. You should look for him. Seek him out. And you'll find him when you come to a stable and you'll see a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's not that remarkable. But this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes will be lying in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And then you will know who he is. He is the Messiah, the Christ, your Lord. Why shepherds? Why? Last week we looked at why Bethlehem, but why shepherds? Why did God decide of all the people in the world that he could have sent his angels to, why did he send his angels to a group of shepherds? If we're being really honest with one another, I have to tell you we just don't know. There, there's no place that you could go in the Bible that says, this is precisely why. This was God's thinking. This is what God was doing there. The Bible doesn't tell us why shepherds. Therefore, we don't know. We know that it was important because it, it's highlighted in Luke's gospel. There have been many good theories that have been put, put forward. I want to tell you three. Duncan has already shared one, and I'll just review it. Then we're going to look at a fourth theory. I, just because the Bible doesn't say explicitly why, it doesn't mean we can't, can't think on these things. It, it doesn't mean that we can't go to the scriptures and start to piece it together. There's, there's good reason that God went to the shepherds. Let me give you three theories, and then we'll look at a fourth in a little more detail. So there, there's the theory of the lowly shepherds, right? The theory of the lowly shepherds, that, that shepherds were social outcasts. They were at the bottom of the social rung. They were ritually unclean, so they could not really participate in, at least in a regular way, in the, the rhythms of worship in Jerusalem. And so God went to shepherds to indicate to us the kind of people that Jesus was sent to save. The lowly and the humble. Not the proud, not the powerful, not the rich. Not that he can't save the rich or the powerful. But it's this idea that God came for the least of us, not the most of us. That's the theory of the lowly shepherds. The, a second theory, which Duncan touched on, was the theory of the shepherds of the Passover flock. It is true that for some centuries, uh, these shepherds watching flocks in Bethlehem, most or if not most many of their sheep would make their way to Jerusalem, especially at Passover, as Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem and all over Israel, and they wouldn't bring a sheep with them. They wouldn't bring a lamb with them, so they had to buy one, and so they would buy a lamb in Jerusalem from these Bethlehem flocks. 
Therefore, the, the thinking of this theory is, is quite profound. That these were shepherds over Passover sheep. And so God sent Passover flock shepherds to the Passover lamb. And so it was God's way of saying, you know, uh, the one in the manger, the one born in the barn, as, as Duncan said, he is the real Passover lamb. That's the second theory. There's a third theory. It's the theory of the heavenly and terrestrial perspectives, the heavenly and terrestrial perspectives. It is quite amazing, right? You have these heavenly angels that come down out of heaven, and they meet with shepherds. And we kind of sort of can borrow from the lowly shepherds theory. The, sort of the lowest of the lowest. So you have these highly exalted angels, these very humble and lowly shepherds, and they come together to celebrate this one event. And, and it's sort of a way of saying uh, Christ came for everyone from between heaven and earth, the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. Because the angels were worshiping Christ, and the shepherds were told to worship Christ. And so Jesus is the king of shepherds and angels. The angels knew who Jesus was. They'd seen him seated on a throne before he became a man, before he was conceived in the womb of Mary, his mother. The shepherds didn't know who he was, but they bear witness to his humanity. You have the divinity of Christ representing the angels, the, the humanity of Christ represented by the shepherds. Now, these are all good theories. And in my opinion, and take it for what it is, I think there's some truth in all of them. There's nothing here that, that seems sort of, uh, I would not cast any of it aside. It, it is good. It enriches our understanding of Christmas. It enriches our understanding of who Jesus is, and it helps us to, to celebrate and worship him a little bit more. Uh, this, this morning, I want to take a little more time to explore a fourth theory. And I call this theory the theory of the Bethlehem shepherd motif. The theory of the Bethlehem shepherd motif. In order to explore this theory, we have to ask three questions. And so the rest of our time this morning is going to look at these three questions. Number one, well, what is the Bethlehem shepherd motif? Number two, why is the Bethlehem shepherd motif relevant? And number three, what does any of this have to do with the shepherds at the nativity? So we're going to drive to the point. We need to do a little background work, but we're going to drive to the point. What does this have to do with the shepherds that the angels came to and then found their way to the Bethlehem stable to pay their respects and to worship Christ their king? So question number one, what is the Bethlehem shepherd motif? I suppose the first question we have to ask is, well, what is a motif? A motif is just a recurring pattern in literature. So you see this, this pattern. A motif is, oh, I, that, that seems familiar. Bethlehem shepherds, okay, we see it here. You read through the Bible a little bit more. Ah, oh, Bethlehem shepherds. You read the Bible a little bit more. Ah, oh, more Bethlehem shepherds. And you keep reading, you see this recurrence. God seems to care about Bethlehem shepherds. So that's a motif. I use Bethlehem shepherds as an example, a recurring pattern in a work of literature, in our case, in the Bible. So we're going to look at this recurring pattern of Bethlehem shepherds. More specifically, I want to define the Bethlehem shepherd motif this way. The Bethlehem shepherd motif is the Bible's celebration of David's call to kingship from the sheepfolds of Bethlehem. Say it again. 
the Bethlehem shepherd motif, is the Bible's celebration of David's call to kingship from the sheepfolds of Bethlehem. To put it another way, David was a Bethlehem shepherd before he was king. And what the Bethlehem shepherd motif does is it celebrates that fact. It celebrates the fact that God took a shepherd from Bethlehem and made him king over his people. And not just king over his people, but a forerunner of the Messiah himself. That's this great celebration. And why do we celebrate it? And for us, you know, Bethlehem has kind of got this cherished, revered status. We talked about that last week. And, and even this idea of shepherds has got this sort of revered status. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So, so when we think of shepherds, we, we think, well, that's a pretty big deal. And when we think of Bethlehem, we know David was from Bethlehem. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we think, well, Bethlehem was a pretty big deal. Uh, but to put it into sort of our common parlance or into our context, it's as if God went to a mechanic in Angus and said, I want to make you king of the world. That's what it's like. You're fixing cars. This is an important profession in case there's any mechanics here. My car actually broke down on the way to church today. Thank you to Wayne Brown for bringing me to church. But you were fixing cars in this small little place in central Ontario. And I want to make you the king of the world. That's what God did for David. And so it's something that the Bible celebrates. God took something that's very small and made much of it. Took a, a, a man who was eighth in line for a very meager inheritance and, and gave him the inheritance of nations. And so the Bible celebrates this because God gets the glory. David should never have been king. His, his son should never have been the Messiah. But that was God's plan. That's what God did. Now, I, I could go to so many places in the Bible to prove this motif. I, I don't think I need to prove it. You all know that David was a Bethlehem shepherd. But I just, just listen. I'm just going to hopscotch through three passages just to prove the point. And then we'll go to our second question. So the first one is in David's call itself, which is in 1 Samuel. 16. We could read all of verses 1 through 13. Let me just read for you 11 to 13. So, so God has rejected the first king of Israel, Saul, and he says, I'm going to find another king. He sends Samuel, his prophet, to Bethlehem, which would have been this backwater place. He says, I want you to find Jesse. One of his sons will be king. So uh, Jesse had tall sons. They all came before him, and, and, and Samuel said, oh, surely this is the one. God said, no. Surely this is the one. No. Surely this is the one. No. And then four, five, six, seven times. David's not even there. God said no to all of Jesse's sons. Samuel says, do you have any more sons? And, and Jesse says, yeah, I've got one more, like the youngest. But, you know, he's a shepherd. He's out looking after the sheep. Don't really worry about him. I don't think he's the one you came for. Then I'll just read for you 11 to 13. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here, as I said? He said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep in Bethlehem. That's introduced earlier. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. He had a fair complexion, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And that's interesting, because earlier God said, don't look on the outer appearance. But here's this fine specimen of a man. He's tall, handsome. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That's the beginning of the, the Bethlehem shepherd motif. God takes the, the, the youngest in a, in a nobody family from the sheepfolds of Bethlehem and anoints him king. Now, this gets repeated in the Davidic covenant, where God makes an eternal covenant with David and says, your son is going to be the Messiah. And he will reign over an eternal kingdom. And this is how God starts that. Just listen, 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 8. God says to his prophet, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. You were just a shepherd in Bethlehem. I made you prince. I made you king. And then if we were to keep reading, and I will give you the king of kings and the Lord of lords from your own body. Then we go to the Psalms. Again, just listen. Psalm 78. Uh, this is a long psalm. And it recounts all that God has done for Israel. And it climaxes in the last three verses. And the climaxes. And more than any of this, what God has done for you, he gave you David to be your king. Look at how, look at how the psalmist says it. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. I took a shepherd of sheep in Bethlehem, and I made him a shepherd of nations. Think, when we think about the shepherds, on that first Christmas, we don't want to miss the obvious. God has a, a, a love for Bethlehem shepherds. He's magnified his sovereign power through a Bethlehem shepherd. Is it any wonder that he sends his angels to some Bethlehem shepherds? But that we've defined the Bethlehem shepherd motif. David was a shepherd, now he's king, and his son will be the king of kings, the Messiah. Question number two. And maybe we could just answer it with what I've said already, but I want to go a little bit deeper. And the second question is this. Well, why is the Bethlehem shepherd motif relevant? We might say, well, you know, that's nice. You could try and put the two and two together. David was a Bethlehem shepherd, and God sends angels to Bethlehem shepherds. But I'm not seeing the connection. But why is it relevant? Show me with a little bit more convincing evidence that there's something here. It's relevant because Jeremiah makes it relevant. The prophet himself, when he's reflecting on, on God's relationship with his people, uh, Jeremiah goes back to this Bethlehem shepherd motif. Open your Bible to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to spend the rest of our time in this passage. Now, if you want to find the book of Jeremiah, it's, it's, it's one of the major prophets. It's right after Isaiah, right before Lamentations and Ezekiel. So if you find the Psalms... Keep going. Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, depending on your Bible. Then you have Isaiah, Jeremiah. Open up to Jeremiah. Chapter 3. As you're finding your place, would you please stand? I'm going to read the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter 3.
verses 14 through 18. These are the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow after their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. The words of God. Oh God, we praise you for this prophecy. And now for the time remaining uh, this morning, help us to understand it. Help us to connect it to that very first Christmas morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Bethlehem shepherd. Amen. Please be seated. I did some study on the, the motif of shepherd in the Old Testament, and I found some amazing things that I don't have time to tell you about right now. Uh, but one of the things I found was that the motif of shepherd, not just Bethlehem shepherd, but shepherd itself is very prominent in Jeremiah. And it's, it's all throughout Jeremiah. Almost 30 times it's mentioned, and it's not all in one place as it is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, check out that chapter if you have time. But it's throughout the whole book. And at the very beginning of the book, a passage that we did not read, Jeremiah opens up and he blasts the shepherds of Israel. And he says, because you have been bad and evil and wicked shepherds over my people, uh, there is going to be devastation that comes. You saw what I did to the northern kingdom. And he's referring to that, that time when he judged Israel, the northern kingdom. And, and don't think that the southern kingdom, that's Judah, uh, where God's people remained, will be any different. I'm going to judge my people because of wicked shepherds. Then we get into Jeremiah chapter 3. And God, through the prophet, is pleading with his people. After that judgment has come, return, oh faithless children. I'm going to judge you, but come back to me. I will not, I will not withstand you. I'll, I'll welcome you with open arms. Come back to me, declares the Lord. I'm your master. Another word for master there is husband. I'm your husband. I indeed will take you. I'm in verse 14. I'm going to take you. I'll take one from the city. I'll take two from a family. In other words, I'll take a few of you. I'll gather a remnant. You'll be my people. This restoration that God promises through the prophets, all the prophets, but here through Jeremiah, goes far beyond what has been accomplished yet. When God says, I promise to restore you, my people, if you keep reading in the prophets, it's not just that, that God's people would return to Jerusalem. 
which happened some 70 years later, right, in the 5th century B.C. It's true. I, I mean, the people went to Babylon and they came back to Jerusalem. But, but the promises of restoration go so much further than that. And, and the promises of restoration are so great in the prophets that God has not yet brought them to pass. He's promised to restore a remnant of Israel, a remnant of Jews. And this is where it matters to us. Every time, almost, uh, at least contextually, every time you read about God's restoration of Israel, the nations are called to join in the restoration. And this is why it matters to us. I want to just show you what this promise is. What I'm about to read you from this passage has not yet happened. So God promised some 600 years before Christ that he was going to judge his people, and he did it. He destroyed Jerusalem. He took them away into exile, into Babylon, and then he allowed a remnant to come back to Jerusalem. But that's not the restoration in view. There's a bigger restoration. Take a look at it, verses 16 to 18. This is what I want you to look at. This restoration is eschatological in nature. What does that mean, eschatological? That's a big word, but it's a good word. Eschatological means it's the beginning of the new age. God's not going to do this until he starts something brand new. A new age. It's the world to come. It's, it's what we're hoping for. It's what we're longing for. He hasn't yet brought all of this to pass. But as I read these verses, this is what you should be looking for. I'm going to take a remnant from Israel, and then I'm going to increase them in number. How is he going to do that? Well, he's going to uh, bless them, and, and he's going to bring nations in. Uh, we're going to read that there's no longer going to be an Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was that box that was in the most holy place in the temple. It was that very holy piece of furniture that if you looked on it the wrong way, you'd be struck dead. Do you know what was inside that box? The Ten Commandments. And God says, no longer will there be an Ark of the Covenant. You know what he's saying? No longer... Will my relationship with you be external? No longer will there be the Ten Commandments in a box that you can't look at. Because the throne of God is going to be in Jerusalem. And implication here, again, broader context, especially as you get later into the book of Jeremiah. I'll take that law that was written on stone tablets and I'll write it on your hearts. I will take the law and I'll internalize it. And, and, and the spirit of God that is enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, he will be enthroned in you. He will dwell in you. And the manifest presence of God himself will be in Jerusalem for you to see. And you will have a relationship that's not by faith. It, it won't be blocked. But you will, and you'll no longer walk by faith, but you'll walk by sight and you will see God enthroned and his spirit will be in you and you will be his people and, and you won't have to go to the ark of the covenant an external source to worship God anymore and you won't have to read about the law external to yourself the law will be on you and in you and you will be perfect righteousness that's what it's all about when, when Jeremiah says no longer are we going to be dealing with the ark of the covenant I've already said the throne of God will be in Jerusalem is what he promises here. Um, the presence of the Lord will be there for all to see. 
There will be an ingathering of nations, and they'll no longer have wicked hearts. So, so whereas no longer having an Ark of the Covenant it talks about the internalization of God's righteousness for the Jew, this no longer wicked heart talks about the regenerate hearts for us Gentiles. Then he says, and I will take my people that I've scattered all over the face of the earth. I'll gather them together and I'll reunite them as one people. This, these are big promises. You see that? And these are promises that have not yet happened. Let me just read them for you. Verse 16. Context. After judgment. That's what this passage is. After judgment. I'm going to gather a remnant. That's verse 14. Skip verse 15 now. Verse 16. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, there shall no, uh, uh, there shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. That's amazing. We're not going to miss the temple. We're not going to miss the Holy of Holies. We're not going to miss the Ark of the Covenant. We're not going to miss all of the shadows that God gave us in the Old Covenant. We're not going to miss them. Why? Because we'll have the real thing. That's what he's going on to say. And we're not going to make those things again, he says, at the end of verse 16. The Ark of the Covenant shall not be made again. And neither will the temple uh, really be made, at least in a New Covenant sense. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. He won't be enthroned in heaven anymore. His throne will be on earth, in Jerusalem. All the nations will gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil hearts. That, that promise is for us. Did you see that? All of the nations will be gathered to Jerusalem to see God on his throne. And we won't have evil hearts Verse 18, and in those days the house of Judah shall join to the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I have gave your fathers for a heritage. This is the gospel according to the prophets. If you ever read the prophets, this is their hope. A very earthy restoration where God manifests the fullness of his person on earth in Jerusalem and reigns over Israel and the nations. It's not often what we think about when we think about the gospel, but if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, that's what they think about. What we've just gone through, that's the gospel according to the prophets. Which means I think that our view of the gospels is not wrong, but it's incomplete. It falls short of the full glory of what God has promised us. How many of you want to go to Jerusalem and to see God? How many of you want to be counted among the nations to worship with Israel in a new heavens and a new earth and God will be there? No longer will there be shadows. But the Lord himself will be the king. We'll live and reign with him forever. Do we want that? Do we ache for that? Because that's the promise here of Jeremiah. Now the question is, we will get to the Bethlehem shepherd motif. The question is, when? Because this didn't happen when the people came back from Babylon. They built a temple and the people cried because it was a miserable looking temple. And more than that, the, the, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God didn't come and rest on the temple. 
And the nations didn't gather to Jerusalem to worship God. They oppressed God's people and they occupied Jerusalem. This this hasn't happened yet. So when? When will this happen? That's what I think verse 15 is all about. Before I read verse 15, before Jesus was born, I want us to remember that there were Jews living in Jerusalem in this so-called restoration for almost 600 years. And yet, God was silent for more than 400 of those years. No prophets. And, And huge empires just traded Jerusalem back and forth. First you had the Assyrians, then you had the Babylonians, then you had the Persians, then you had the Greeks, then you had the Romans. So you know what the Pharisees said? The Pharisees says the reason that these promises haven't come to pass is because we are still unclean in our sin. And so before we hate on the the Pharisees too much, uh, they were so careful about the things that people did because they thought, well, if we just clean ourselves up, then maybe this will happen. That's not true, though. We have a chronological marker in verse 15. Verse 14 is all about God gathering a remnant. Verses 16 to 18 is what that glorious restoration is going to look like. It's going to be amazing. Something that that we haven't even begun to meditate enough on in the church. The things that God has promised to us. Verse 15 now we have a chronological marker. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Who are these shepherds? Before verses 16 to 18 happens, what God says is, I'm going to send you some shepherds. That's going to start this whole restoration that I'm talking about. The beginning of the restoration is going to happen when I send you shepherds. And these shepherds are going to shepherd you, quite literally in the Hebrew, uh, with knowledge and understanding. And then you know that the new age has begun. You will know that the restoration has started. Now, These are Bethlehem shepherds. How do I know that? Do you see anywhere there that says Bethlehem? I will give you shepherds after my own heart, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and understanding. Why would I say that this verse should be tied into the Bethlehem shepherd motif? Do you see any words that ring familiar? I'm going to send you shepherds after my own heart. After my own heart. Do we know of anyone else of whom God has said, this is a man after my own heart? David. In fact, before God anointed David from the sheepfolds of Bethlehem, he had an encounter with Saul. I just want to visit, I think this is important for the big picture. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he started off good enough, but by the end he had been disobedient to God to the point where God rejected him. He was a wicked shepherd. He was an evil shepherd, a disobedient shepherd. So God punished him and took away the kingship from him. Now this is very familiar because God said the same thing to a string of Davidic kings that led to exile. 
So you see this transference from one shepherd to another with Saul to David. You see the same thing with the kings of Israel and Judah. So these end time shepherds in Jeremiah 3.15. So Saul had disobeyed God. And Samuel was sent by God to confront him. And, And just listen, 1 Samuel 13, which is three chapters before we're introduced to David. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is really the beginning of the Bethlehem shepherd motif. He has taken the kingship from you and given it to your neighbor who is a man after his own heart. That's exactly what we get here. If you are steeped in the Old Testament and you're cruising along through uh, the Old Testament and you go through Isaiah, then you come to Jeremiah and you're reading along and you get to this verse, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart, you pause and you say, aha, there, there is a connection to David here. And if a connection to David, just as Saul was rejected for a Bethlehem shepherd, so the shepherds of Israel are going to be rejected for some Bethlehem shepherds. That's exactly what this is saying. So who are these shepherds? Let's start with the obvious. The true Bethlehem shepherd is the one lying in the manger. Not only is he the, sh- the lamb of God, but he is the shepherd. And in John's gospel, he says as much, I am the good shepherd. He is the Bethlehem shepherd. So in order to bring about this restoration that we've talked about, I'm going to send you shepherds. One of those shepherds is the shepherd. And he just happens to be after God's heart. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And he just happens to be born in Bethlehem. He, he just is the richest, most ultimate fulfillment of the Bethlehem shepherd motif. He and David are Bethlehem shepherds. We've got a problem. Now, God is not careless with his word. And if I read verse 15, it doesn't say, I will give you a shepherd. And just so you know that God has made that singular promise, just again, go to Ezekiel 34. He identifies, I will send you David, and he will shepherd my people. So you get the parallel promise in Ezekiel 34 in the singular. Jeremiah doesn't give us the singular. He gives us the plural. And he says, I will give you shepherds, plural, after my own heart. I'm going to send you shepherds like David. I'm going to send you Bethlehem shepherds. And that will be an indication to you that I am beginning to restore you. That will be an indication to you that this new age has begun. And these shepherds have a task to fulfill. Do you see the second half of verse 15? They will shepherd you with knowledge and understanding. These shepherds will feed a flock, that is the people who are going to be restored in these spectacular ways with knowledge and understanding. 
That brings us to our third question. What does any of this have to do with the shepherds of the nativity? Let me give you three observations, two very quickly because we've already touched on them, and then one which will bring this home. Observation number one. There is a Bethlehem shepherd connection between David and the shepherds at the nativity. We've already said that. You know, it was about as unlikely that God would go to David in Bethlehem as he would send his angels to these shepherds on the very first Christmas. God has just decided to love and do marvelous things in and through Bethlehem shepherds. This is near and dear to God's heart. There's something about the Bethlehem shepherd that exemplifies who God is. These shepherds, as I've said, remind us that David and Jesus were both Bethlehem shepherds. So the next time you're, you're putting your nativity set together and you put Jesus down there and you bring the shepherds in, what I want you, if you have like a little figure of David, just put him in there too. Because what you have is an ingathering of Bethlehem shepherds. You have David, these other Bethlehem shepherds, and then the ultimate Bethlehem shepherds, Jesus himself. So if, if nothing else, these shepherds are serving that function to make that David connection. Observation number two. The shepherds at the nativity helped to fulfill Jeremiah 3.15. We've already talked about this. The God promised not one singular shepherd, but shepherds, plural. Thus, I would propose to you this morning that these Bethlehem shepherds were visited by the angels to begin, not to end, but to begin the fulfillment of Jeremiah 3, 14 through 18. When does this new age begin? When is the end times start? They start on that night. Why? Because in, in Jeremiah 3, 14, come back to me, says God. After I've judged you, come back. I will restore you. When does the restoration begin? Well, when I send you shepherds. The beginning of the end times is on that first Christmas night when God literally sent shepherds. And those shepherds literally fed people with knowledge and understanding. Listen to what they did. They, they maybe didn't realize that they were fulfilling Jeremiah 3.15, but they were. In Luke 2... I want to read for you verses 15 to 20. When the angels went away from the shepherds into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. So, so up to that point, we have observation one. You have the union of the Bethlehem shepherds gathered together. When they saw it, this is the point. This is the fulfillment. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. 
I'm going to send you shepherds, says God, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and understanding. The, the, the heavens open, the angels come down to these unassuming shepherds, and they're told that a great thing has happened in Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem, and it's exactly what they said, and then they go out from that stable, and to anyone who would listen, they would say, you would not believe the night we are having. The, the heavens opened, these angels came down, and we saw heaven, and these angels told us that the Messiah was born that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he was going to save his people, and he was going to rule over the nations. And we went, and it was just as those angels had told us. And we saw him. The Savior has come. The restoration is going to begin. Everyone who heard what they said were fed with knowledge and understanding. They said, what is this marvelous thing? After all these centuries, has God finally visited us with his son? Has he come to us? Will he save us? Will he restore us? And just three decades later, that's exactly what Jesus' disciples say, is now the time. But you will establish your kingdom. Is now the time. And Peter was caught up and he saw the transfigured Christ in all of his divine glory. He says, it's good that we're here. Let me set up some tents. Let's start the kingdom. You see, what the disciples understood and what everybody who missed the first coming of Jesus understood is exactly what we miss. Is that Jesus actually came to do some things on earth. He came to establish a kingdom and, and, and to, to set up the, the eternal reign of God from Jerusalem. But this restoration has begun 2,000 years ago. And you say, well, man, he's slow getting from verse 15 to verse 16. Sure he is. God is not slow as some consider slow. For him, to him, a day is like a 1,000 years, or a 1,000 years is like a day. And he's slow in fulfilling his promises because of his patience toward us. Because he doesn't want any of us to miss it. And he's slow in bringing about these things because when he sets up his throne in Jerusalem and when the nations stream to Jerusalem, those who have not received the Lamb of God will not be permitted to look on the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You see... What the first century Jews understood, what the disciples understood, is that God is going to send his Messiah to come as a lion. They'd missed the fact that he had to come first as a lamb. Otherwise, the lion would rip all of us to, to shreds in his judgment. But having purchased us as the lamb of God, why don't we look for his return as the lion of the tribe of Judah to bring the full restoration. The restoration has begun. God has sent his shepherds to feed us with knowledge and understanding. And now we long for the king to return, which brings me to observation three. These nativity shepherds are forerunners of pastor teachers in the local church while we wait. We wait for the transition from verses 15 to 16. And in the hundreds and thousands of years that have uh, elapsed from, from verse 15 to the beginning of verse 16, God has sent shepherds to every local church. And it is our responsibility as his shepherds to continue fulfilling 
verse 15 until he returns to fulfill verses 16 through 18. So why shepherds? Sure, they exemplify the kind of person that God sent Jesus to save. It's people like these shepherds that will populate the kingdom. It's because these shepherds shepherded sheep that would be slaughtered at Passover in Jerusalem, and the real Passover lamb was born in the stable. It did bring heaven and earth together as the angels bore witness to the divinity of Christ and the shepherds bore witness to his humanity. But more than that, God is fulfilling an ancient promise through his prophet Jeremiah to send shepherds to fill us with knowledge and understanding. What if when we celebrate Christmas this year, we considered God's promise to send shepherds after his own hearts, Bethlehem shepherds, to be more dear to us than every other nostalgic tradition. Don't stop with your traditions. Consider these shepherds because they declared the beginning of something quite remarkable. The reign of God in the person of Christ from Jerusalem. Regenerate hearts, the ingathering of the nations, one people under Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, this is a big idea. I thank you for sending shepherds to remind us that you love Bethlehem shepherds, that the Christ child is a Bethlehem shepherd, that you reject evil shepherds like Saul and like the kings and like the religious leaders that you did not appear to on that first Christmas morning but you will shepherd your people. We thank you for these Bethlehem shepherds. They enrich our understanding of the gospel and what you have done for us in Christ. Help us to be like Mary, to treasure up all these things and ponder them in our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.